happy Sunday. If you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 5. We'll be in verses 1 to 20. And out of reverence for God's Word, uh, wherever you may be, living room, kitchen, if you're driving, then uh, don't do this. Uh, but please stand out of reverence for God's Word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And when he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. See, the text that we're in today, it can be quite sobering. And what I mean is that in the scope of some 20 verses, Mark sets in front of us a world where Jesus's presence alone confronts every opposition to peace, be it spiritual beings or, or rebellious people. Whoever is in rebellion to peace, Jesus confronts them. And this is not a new scene in the gospel according to Mark, but up until this point, this is perhaps the most graphic representation and presentation of evil in this present age. But I think that many of us have fallen asleep to this reality. We've just let it pass us by in a slumber, if you will. 
And, so, and we just live these lives where our chief concerns lie somewhere between paying the bills, wondering when dating is okay again, and what we're going to eat for dinner that evening. But then all of a sudden, evil just breaks through our normal routines, and we hear of more pointless gun violence needlessly killing our city's youth. And we ask, where did this evil come from? Or we see that a virus that we thought was maybe innocuous or for those people over on the other side of the world breaks across the seas and is taking tens of thousands of lives. And we once again ask, where is this evil from? And when we don't know how to name these evils because we're asleep to them and to these realities, we then turn to to point the finger, we, we turn to assign blame and we turn to one another in that. Let, let me just say this, if any of this resonates with you or, or it's stirring up, agitating your heart right now as you listen, may this teaching serve as a wake-up call of sorts, a wake-up call to the reality that Mark is inviting us into. And maybe that sounds or feels unkind or a bit pushy, maybe even unpastoral. But Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus that Mark is bringing us to in this passage, and really throughout the whole gospel according to Mark, is here to confront and to restore the real effects of evil in our world. Not in an imaginary place, not just up there someday far off, but here, today. And maybe you're unaware or you've forgotten that in the beginning chapter of the human story, a major conflict emerged. And now people articulate this conflict in a number of ways, but in the Bible's way of articulating this conflict, it is to say that the kingdom of God is at war with the domain of darkness. In fact, in the first mention of God's victory, his ultimate victory in this conflict, we see in Genesis 3 that the serpent, the one who introduced evil into the world in the first place, that that serpent's head is crushed. See, the story in front of us is all about this. And it's not just hyperbole meant to stir up our emotions for some sort of narrative affect. That's not what's going on here at all. Rather, the text here opens up to us the very heart of God in the face of evil. I love, I love how C.S. Lewis, a brilliant thinker and a follower of Jesus from this past century, I love how he frames this. He says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God. And then get this, and counterclaimed by Satan. And at the core of Lewis's statement is that since there is no neutral ground in the universe, there too are no neutral people. Like we, we can't say, oh, I'm just agnostic. I, I just don't know about this stuff. Or I'll just be Switzerland in this moment. There's simply no neutral ground here. And this passage then presents for us a moment to reorient or perhaps for you to orient yourself for the very first time to Jesus and his way of peace or what Mark calls the kingdom of God. My guess is that if you grew up around churchianity, or even if you haven't, that you've heard about this passage, and, and certainly if you did grow up in and around the church, then you've heard this passage taught before. But, but today, I want to do two things, and maybe they're different, maybe they're the same. 
First, I want us to see how God is willing to go to the dark places. And so to get us there, we're going to have a little clarity on geography and history and the like. And second, I want us, as we come to a draw, like come to draw this thing to a close, I want us to have a vision for God's heart in the face of evil today, for our time. And so here's all I'm going to do. I'm going to pray, and we're just going to get after this and work our way right on through the passage. So join me now, if you will, in a brief word of prayer. Father, we come and we confess that much of our way of viewing the world is rooted in materialism, that it's bound in by all we can touch and see and taste, and we've fallen asleep to the glory of the God who spoke the world into order, coming into the world to be with us and for us and to us what we perpetually fail to be. And so God, I just pray that you, through the power of your spirit and your word today, will wake up, will stir our hearts to life in Jesus' name that you, Jesus, will be more vibrant than we could ever imagine, more beautiful than we've ever seen. And would we see in you a hope that stands true in the face of darkness, even a moment as dark as the one we're in now. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come, and especially so we pray, Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit, and wake us up to the living word who is Jesus of Nazareth. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray and ask that you bless this time. Amen. So in case you are just joining us for the first time and you're thinking that's a bit of a heavy introduction, welcome. (laughs) And for the past number of months, we've been on this slow roll with Jesus and his disciples in the gospel according to Mark. And, And what we've seen time and time again as they travel around this northern part of Israel, this region called the Galilee by the sea, is Jesus proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand and is doing so with power and authority, even to the point that this past week in the end of Mark chapter four, we see that Jesus speaks and creation itself obeys Jesus's call. But then this week, we come to Mark chapter five, verse one, and we see that they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. It's this shift. There's been this intense season of ministry for Jesus and his disciples, and now they head off to the other side. And we'll just stop right here in verse 1. If you were one of the first audiences hearing this episode read aloud, you would have to go no further than this verse to be scandalized. See, already you would be able to sense the tension because the other side, in Jesus' context, it creates these, these two problems. First, it's the sea. See, the people are not seafaring people. Now, now granted, some of Jesus' disciples are fishermen, but by and large, these are Bedouin tribes from the desert, not people of the sea. I mean, God didn't give them the promised lake. He gave them the promised land. So, So this first tension is the sea itself. And what grows out of this orientation to the land is a theology of the land, of of God's presence with them in the land. But then on the other side of that is this deep primal sphere of the sea. And so much so that the waters, the Sea of Galilee, or or maybe you'll see it in your translation, the Sea of Tiberias, the Lake of Tiberias, this place becomes called the place of the deep 
or the abyss. It, it, it almost takes on its own persona as a place of evil. That's problem one. Problem two is that for Jesus to say that he's going to the other side, it isn't as simple as somebody who lives in, you know, let's say the, the west side, like West Des Moines, saying they're going to go to the East Village. Like this isn't a physical journey. Yes, it is that, but it's more. It's a spiritual journey as well. And stay, stay with me here because the other side, it isn't just taboo. It's unclean. It's the place of the ungodly pagan oppressors who have no concern for God or God's law. And then the Decapolis, the region that Jesus and his disciples will eventually land in, it's this collection of closely integrated Greek and Roman cities, a region that's largely occupied by Roman soldiers. Those are the people who are literally oppressing the Jewish people in this time. And what history tells us is that wherever Rome went, so too went its culture. And so just, just imagine this. You are a young Jewish disciple of Jesus. You've just heard after an intense season of ministry that you're going to go to the other side. This is not the place of a little R&R. This isn't like a good Sabbath if that's what you're thinking you're going to get now. And you've lived in this same region your whole life. Like you know of the ills and the evil that are over there with those people. You know that when you go to the other side, you're bound to encounter these Greek gymnasiums, theaters, temples, sex, sports, wild living. And so there's a tension within yourself because the, the Decapolis, like I said a moment ago, begins to take on a persona of its own. It's this place that's romantic and yet forbidden. It's almost the place where secret sin abides. In fact, many people think that this is the place, this is the far off land in the imagination of the people as they hear of the prodigal son running off. It's the place of wild living. And so just imagine that this is you with Jesus going over there to the other side. And begin to imagine in your heart, like why would any sensible Jewish person who's trying to avoid idolatry and evil ever wants to go to the other side. I mean, these are disciples of a rabbi, a teacher of the law. Like, what are Peter, James, and John thinking? Like, I imagine them thinking, is Jesus serious? Surely, surely, okay, he must just, he's gonna tear into the Gentiles. Like, he's gonna rip them a new one, right? Like that, maybe that's the safety net in their thinking of this. But then beneath that, there might be this fear of why are, why are we going? So, to the land of the pagans? And then we read this in verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. You know, the, the, the picture that you see here, th these hills, th these uh, where the, these tombs are cut into the rock. This is where many scholars actually think this scene went down. And so just let this sink in. There you are with Jesus. You're one of his closest followers. And yet 
in many ways, you've, you've been cloistered your whole life. And now you get to this place that you ought not be, this forbidden zone, if you will, and a naked, demon-possessed man starts running at you with full force, running, making a beeline to your rabbi, and he stands there, not even flinching. Suffice it to say, this is not like a scene out of the Jesus storybook Bible. And in this time and place in the first century, if you were to see someone's nakedness, it would not be shameful for them. Rather, the shame would be on you. And so not only is there fear rising up, we can imagine, but there's shame for having seen the nakedness of this man running out. And so what we do, because this is a graphic scene, is we begin to to press it down, to tamp it down and suppress it so we can swallow it. So it, so it's not as sharp and, and visceral. And then what we, what we then imagine this scene is that this man kind of comes out of this dark place and he's like going, uh, uh, and then Jesus turns around and just says, Hey, just cut it out already. Okay. It's like a noisy neighbor who you just text or you give a phone call. Listen, you need to really keep it down. No, it's nothing like that. This man is violent. He's cutting himself day and night. He's in the tombs. It's, it's the place of death. It's like he's just drenched in uncleanness. This story would be offensive. And yet Jesus stands there in the land of the unclean, in the people of the unclean, with a man who is drenched in uncleanness, and he does not move. And by the way, no one can tame this man. No one can bind him. The language used here is like the taming or the subduing of a wild animal. This man has broken those shackles. And then we get this in verse 6. Go there with me now. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Just take, take a moment and let's read that again. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, as they often are. And they begged him, this is Legion speaking to Jesus, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Look there at verse 7. What a question. What have you to do with me, son of the most high God? See, no one up until this point in the gospel according to Mark have named Jesus with such precision. See, this is the very line. If you, if you were to flip back a couple of pages to the beginning of the gospel according to Mark, you would actually read this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. 
It's almost as though you're wondering, hold on, did, did, did this legion, have they got, did they get like a preview of the gospel according to the mark? Do they know who Jesus is? Well, yes. But, but get this. This man, he, he sees Jesus. Remember, we took stock of verse 6 when we first came to this passage. He sees him from far off and bows at his feet. So not only does he name him, but he's bowing there. What is this moment? This is a, a picture and a posture of worship. But how? Like, how in the world can this be so? Certainly this man is outside the scope of God's kingdom. We, like, if, you, if you're maybe one of Jesus' followers and you're like hiding behind your rabbi, I imagine this is the question that you're asking. Certainly not him. Certainly not. And yet, for certain, he is not outside the scope of God's kingdom. Rather, this man, he is the site of the clashing of kingdoms. And we see this in verse 9 when, when Jesus asks the man, like, what is your name? To which the unclean spirit responds, legion, for we are many. And now this might sound a bit confusing, but these are layers. Like this is, Mark is just cramming all of this symbolic meaning. And actually the, the pigs, which feel out of place in this moment, the pigs might help us here. See, legion is a unit of Roman soldiers, about 5,000 Roman soldiers. And at this time in history, the 10th legion occupied the region of the Decapolis. And they're there to keep the Jews in check. And you have any guess? what their mascot was, what the 10th Legion's mascot was. It, it was a boar. It was a wild pig. And so Jesus, interacting with this legion of demons and then casting the demons out of the man, it, it's like him saying, I am here to value you. I see you. I honor you. I'm ordering the chaos that is oppressing you. But it's also Jesus declaring that he has a heart for those beyond Jerusalem. It's, it's him declaring and naming the darkness of the Roman military oppressors. See, in Jesus' name, the culture of oppression in Rome, it will not stand. And so you may be thinking, but, but Kyle, what about the pigs? Like, really? The pigs, Jesus? The pig so, so here's this. Jesus sends the demons into the pigs, but it's the demons that go down the hillside into the waters. And, and remember from a moment prior, when we think about the waters in the Jewish and the Hebrew imagination, it's the place of the abyss. See, it's only fitting that these demons would go into the place of the abyss. It's like Mark is just packing all of this meaning in here that Jesus, he will go to the dark places and confront the oppression there. And they will run in the face of Jesus. But what's interesting is that when Jesus shows up to our dark spaces, to the place of oppression, we don't always like it when Jesus confronts our evil, do we? Well, we're, we're not alone in feeling the discomfort of Jesus's presence. By the way, that's uh, conviction. If that's what you're feeling right now, if that secret sin that you have gotten really good at hiding from everyone in your family, in your workplace, in your community, if that's what's coming up right now, that, that's the Spirit of God convicting your 
heart, like convicting your conscience in the name of Jesus. No one likes that. We actually see this in verse 14. We read on and we, and we see this. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country. And then the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it, they described it to them. What had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now just stop right there. In this moment, do you see what's going on here? The value that the people have for the pigs over the person? It's, it's like they're willing to elevate their commerce over the common good of this person who bears the image of God. And Jesus showing up confronts the whole spectrum of the way they view the world. And in the face of Jesus, some sit at his feet and others ask him to leave. It's pretty interesting. See, they, they begged Jesus to go and he honored their request. We, we see this as we read on. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away. And he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You know, one of the first times that I, I heard this taught, this, this whole passage taught, I, I was surprised by the title of the sermon because the title of the sermon was, What if Jesus doesn't want you to follow him? It was a little clickbaity, so I, I, like I went after it. But I'm, I was struck by this interaction between Jesus and the the demon-possessed man. And the question that came to the fore in that little teaching is, I wish I could say this was an original thought of mine so you could you know, send me praise and stuff, but it's not. The question that came to the fore was this, do you know what the posture of a disciple was in the first century? It was to sit at another's feet. It's this position of respect and honor. It says this, it says, I want to be with you, that I will sit at your feet. I will learn from you so I can become like you to do what you do. And while the disciples are behind Jesus cowering in fear and the crowds are far off cowering in fear, this once possessed man is sitting at the feet of Jesus, earnestly asking that he be with him. And what's striking for me in this is that this is what the gospel looks like when it breaks into our lives. See, evil had broken into this man's life. Like his whole life is an image of the oppression of the Roman people. Not only are the demons, like the legion, the representation of oppression in this man, so powerful that it breaks the shackles off, but Jesus's presence pushes back, orders him, sets him in his right mind, and positions him in a place where Jesus entrusts the good news to him. It's remarkable. See, this man doesn't go back to the tomb to just keep living the life that he had before he encountered Jesus, which is what many of us have done when we first encountered Jesus. Everything has changed. Jesus opens up a whole new realm of possibilities. And just, just think about this for a moment, the, the whole scope of the story. 
Jesus arrives to announce that new life, like new creation is on offer. He, he commands the demon to leave and that those who are far off and oppressed can be brought near. This is the kingdom of God. And that when Jesus is present, there's no superpower, cosmic or otherwise, that can stand in the face of his unfailing mercy. And yet, to this freedom, the people say no, and this man says yes. The, the people say no, thank you, that we actually prefer the, the, like the, the commerce of pigs and what they bring for us over and against the healing of this man. And have you ever noticed this? That when Jesus reaches into those dark places, the places that we really don't want him to, that he's not met with a warm welcome. I mean, just think about the last time that you had uh, maybe a conversation with a colleague about the sexual ethics of Christianity. How did that conversation go? Did it create like a moment of compromise? Or was it a tense moment? Like, certainly it brought something to the fore. Maybe you yourself, like you're, you're trying to advocate for a Christian sexual ethic, which is scandalous in our cultural moment, but you yourself wrestle with the secret sexual sin. And so you're torn in this place. And I just want to say to you, Jesus is here to speak compassion and hope, and yet he's also here to speak freedom and deliverance in those moments. So he can give compassion and hope to you in your secret sin that you no longer have to live in the midst of that. And he can speak deliverance to you from that, but also so that you can with confidence speak compassionately about the deliverance he has to others. And it doesn't mean that you stand in condemnation over others. It just simply means that you stand with conviction in Christ. So yet here, even in the darkest of places, the places that Jesus isn't wanted, he's faithful to show up and he does so in surprising ways because check this out, like to these hard-hearted and fearful people in the face of rejection, Jesus sends a demon-delivered man to tell them of God's mercy and they marvel at it. So as we come to a close, the, the vision that I want us to like cultivate in our heart starts from the answer to this question, like when was the last time that you marveled at the mercy of God in your life? When was the last time that you were arrested by God's grace just extending to you in the person of Jesus? When was that? Account, how did Jesus confront the evil in your own heart? How, how did that go? What was that sweet release that he offered that way forward into hope? See, as we begin to think on these things and, and we allow the imaginations of our hearts to be stirred and our affections to be stirred for Jesus, we too, like the demon-delivered man, begin to see a whole new horizon of possibilities open up. And yet, if you're like me, I often like take God's mercy for granted. And, and so, like, it's, it's not until evil breaks in to my normalcy that I'm reminded of God's grace. And yet the call of Jesus here in this moment, maybe, maybe it's for you to stay close at hand, to get on the boat and go back to the other side. But maybe it's for you to actually go for you to take his grace with you into your workspaces, digital or otherwise, to your family, 
Maybe right now is the moment where you can be the reconciling presence of Jesus in your family. I can imagine no greater moment than this where the peace of Jesus is needed. That that Jesus' words of grace, that Jesus' words of freedom can be embodied by his followers in such a way that we don't actually have to win an argument. Because Jesus actually saw this thing through. See, this is not going to be the last moment that Jesus confronts evil. He's going to, in the gospel according to Mark, continue on this path. And the way that he confronts evil will continue to be surprising and frustrating at the same time. It's surprising in that it doesn't show up how you want it. And that's why it's frustrating. We want, when we're honest, we want deliverance from this moment. We want the virus eradicated, and that is a good thing. But sometimes our motives are are, are centered on our materialism. They're, they're centered on, our, on us rather than the glory and the kingdom of God. And I, I stand here not with one who has this whole thing together, but one who's like aching and longing for God to break in and yet holding the tension of knowing that I have selfish motives. But God's grace, it is slow. You know, it's his kindness that actually leads us to repentance. You can bring the fullness of that to this moment of tension. And I don't know how you're feeling this tension, but what I do know is that God in Christ went to the darkest place. When he continued from this point forward, he continued to a place where he would reveal more and more of who he was to the place that where the people he was sent to save actually rejected him and had him hung on a Roman execution rack. These same people, Jesus says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. It is this forgiveness that we actually have to offer. That is the place of peace. See, because God showed up in the darkest of moments and he allowed darkness to have its full affect in his life, to have its best shot. And then in the power of God, Jesus was raised from death to life so that we who trust in him can actually move from a place of darkness to light. We can sit at the feet of Jesus, ordered and in our right mind to be sent out as his peace into this moment. And so, when was the last time that you marveled at the mercy of God? When was it? It's probably been too long. Let us do that now. Let us turn our attention in praise. In just a few moments after this teaching, if you're here on the premiere with us, we're actually going to gather together on a little Zoom call, and we're going to praise and exalt God's name. We're, we're going to exalt his name because this day in the history of the church is the day when God's spirit was poured out. It's the day when his abiding presence came to be with us so that we might be his presence to the world. So join us, like draw together everything within you and exalt the name of Jesus. Come and remember him. Let us be the church in this moment and let us remember who and whose we are. Grace and peace to you, church. 